You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's show. Woo! Hey, good to be here, as always. Yeah. I'm I'm kicking things off, and my story begins with Jocelyn Bell. She was born mm-hmm. in 1943 in Northern Ireland, and she became interested in astronomy and physics, mm-hmm. uh, and then she eventually worked her way up uh, to be a post-grad research student in 1967, Ooh. where she got to do something pretty cool. Okay. She helped build, I love the name of this, the Interplanetary Scintillation Array. Yes. Which is such a cool sounding thing to get to work on uh okay. and it was it was pretty cool sounds awesome. the name sounds fancy but it's essentially just a bunch of antennas uh that can be used as a radio telescope that's so cool now back when yeah back when she helped build it uh the array covered four acres so that's about four football fields in size uh, it eventually expanded to nine acres oh wow and uh was made up of over four thousand dipole antennas now for those of you who aren't massive nerds like me, uh, a dipole antenna is just an antenna with two halves. So okay. if, you've, if you've ever adjusted the metal bunny ear antennas mm. on a TV back in the old days, yeah, yeah, yeah. you have touched a type of dipole antenna. Uh, so fun side fact. So imagine 4,000 antennas. Oh, my god! Uh, fun side fact about the interplanetary scint- scintillation array. Um, they couldn't mow under all those antennas because of all the wires and things like that. Right. So they just had a huge herd of goats. That would walk under the antenna and keep the grass short. That's awesome. Did did you say geese? Goats. Uh, Goats. Goats. That makes more sense. Goats. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if it was geese, they would be attack geese at that point. They would eat the grass, too. It's not not really important. Anyway. Not really important to today's story, but I thought it was a cool fact. Now, Jocelyn Bell not only helped build this radio telescope, she helped test it out. And while testing it, she noticed something strange uh, like in the in the signals they were receiving, and she pointed mm. it out to her advisor, and he told her to ignore it because it was likely just some sort of interference they were getting. Right. Well, she was pretty kick-ass and curious, and so she ignored the know-it-all man in charge and investigated I the strange signal <laughs> she was detecting. Yeah, pretty awesome. So um, turns out, unlike interference from something on Earth, it became clear that the the rapid signal that was pulsing every 1.3 seconds was coming from space as it was Whoa. always found in the same part of the sky. And it you could tell it was something moving space. overhead that Ooh. came by at the same time each day. <laughs> um, and uh, turns out she was the first human to ever detect a pulsar, a completely hey. new class of celestial object. That's so cool. Uh, the discovery, yeah, it's very cool. The discovery was so huge that the Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded to none other than the guy who told her to ignore it. Uh, That's right. Once again, the dude shock. gets all the credit. Who would yeah. have now, guessed? Now, to be fair, to be fair, um, 
he did very quickly come around to realize that she had discovered something uh, and they went on to together um, publish a paper together. Um, he was actually the guy who had designed the telescope. Um, and since he was the actual lead researcher, his name went on the paper and he actually did, did do a lot of the work to kind of figure out what it was and whatnot. Um, she was the one to make the initial discovery with his telescope, though. And people are, mm -hmm. are a little bit bitter that she wasn't named on the Nobel Prize. I yeah. will say for her part, at least yeah. publicly, she agreed. She actually agreed that she shouldn't have gotten it. And she said that the that research lab students generally shouldn't get Nobel Prizes. Um, but she did all right for herself. Uh, right. Moving forward, she was later the president of the Royal Astronomical Society. Oh, that's a pretty big deal, yeah. probably. Yeah, <laughs> and, awesome. and the president of the Institute of Physics. She was later uh, awarded uh, $3 million for the special breakthrough prize Whoa. in fundamental physics in 2018. Oh, wow. And what did she do with the $3 million? She didn't yeah. go buy a fancy car or anything. She established a fund to help female, minority, and refugee students become physics researchers. Oh, I love her even more. Good for her. Pretty, <laughs> she's pretty awesome. Sounds amazing. Uh, now, the real strange part of my topic this week um, is what she discovered, and that's pulsars. Mm -hmm. And so um, they're weird. You know, it was pretty. Sh yeah, it was pretty shocking to receive this regular pulse from outer space. And she and her boss, the guy who actually got the Nobel Prize, initially joked that it might be a signal from aliens. <laughs> they didn't actually take that real seriously, but they, you know, they thought about it enough that they actually l informally labeled the sig signal LGM one. Standing for Little Green Men One. So good. <laughs> they actually good. had a few conversations about how to responsibly tell people if, like, indeed it was something as strange as aliens. Like, how do you break that news to people? So mm -hmm. it was something that actually came up um, very quickly, though. They discovered uh, that. A good discussion to have. Yeah. But they quickly, as they do using this telescope and whatnot, they started to discover more pulsars. And it became clear that this was just a natural phenomenon. So. What is a pulsar? You may remember many episodes ago, I think it was like episode seven, um, I talked about neutron stars. Um, if you mm, haven't listened to yeah, that, that go back. It's it's really, it's a really heavy topic. Um, oh. <laughs> oh. Sorry. You're this welcome. This is where you remind um, us that you are a dad. That I'm a dad. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Neutron stars are basically the collapsed cores of stars that are left behind after a supernova, right? So you right, can think yeah. of them as failed black holes in a way. Like if there had been more mass, they would have kept shrinking down to a black hole, but they didn't quite get there. Um, mm -hmm. And they are, even though they're not black holes, they are just unimaginably dense and so bizarre. Uh, if you go back and mm -hmm. listen to that memory, that, that uh, sorry, the episode, it'll refresh your memory. But uh, just one little fact out of there is that if you can imagine a star twice the mass of our sun, so really, mm -hmm. really big, right? And you compress it into mm -hmm. a ball seven miles across. That's <laughs> how big a neutron star or a pulsar would be, right? And one teaspoon Ugh. of that material, one teaspoon would weigh 10 million tons. <laughs> yeah. Breaks your I brain. remember my mind being blown when you did the neutron star. Exactly. Yeah. My, my brain is still blown by these things. Right. We believe that pulsars actually just aren't, they're neutron stars. That's what they are. The difference between a neutron star, though, and what we call a pulsar is that the pulsar has retained the angular momentum of the original star 
or in less nerdy terms, it's spinning. That's what yeah. it is. It's a spinning neutron star. And the pulses we detect can be thought of as like a beam from a rotating lighthouse. So yep. if it, oh, yeah, hey, if it is pointed at us the correct way, as it goes around, these radio waves like whoop, whoop, go like shooting out every time it rotates around. Okay. Um, now, how fast do they rotate? Well, do you want to hear at some samples? At 1.3 seconds. Okay. Well, if it's hitting us every 1.3 seconds and it's oh, seven really, miles really far across, away. And it's far away, yeah. Uh, that's oh, very fast. That's so well, fast. we're going to start off. I didn't off. even think about that. Oh, goodness. We're going to start ready. off with the sound of a great a pulsar here. It's named B0329-54. It's an exciting name. It rotates mm. 1.4 times a second. So listen to this here. Can you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. Just sort of a thump, thump, click, thump. Click, 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 clicking. click. All right, click. that's that's very similar to that first one that was discovered. So they're hearing this like thump, thump, thump. And you can see why they'd be like, okay, well, this is uh, just interference. Weird. We're getting interference from some piece mm-hmm. of equipment. It turns out, no, this right. is coming from outer space. It's consistent. Like, yeah. where else would it be coming from? Yeah. Exactly. We don't usually find things that are so sort of consistent like that in nature. Now, mm-hmm. up next, we have one that's going a little faster. We have the uh, Vela Pulsar. It sounds, I think, just like the spin cycle on my washing machine. Uh, <laughs> the entire thing rotates 11 times per second. It sounds like this. Whoa. Wow. That that's is so fast crazy fast for something it does sound that like massive a we rotate on a spin cycle <laughs> right? exactly yeah. uh, this this it's hard to picture something so big <laughs> rotating so fast but i tell you what you want to go faster what let's go faster um the crab nebula <laughs> okay. pul- the crab nebula pulsar rotates uh-huh. 30 times per second so imagine like what? 30 times in a second, it's going to be rotating. This is actually a historically so significant, dizzy. both because it was one of the first pulsars studied because they kind of went, well, if it is a neutron star, we're pretty sure there's a neutron star at the core of the Crab Nebula. So let's, let's listen there. And sure enough, they mm-hmm. found a pulsar there where they expected to. It's also really cool because um, we know that a supernova created the Crab Nebula because... Um, Chinese astronomers actually observed the supernova take place in the year 1054. And we can that's now so see cool. the remains oh, wow. of that in space. So very cool. And oh, this is that's what so cool. <laughs> this is what it sounds like. Ah. <laughs> like a weed whipper. Yeah, it it so sounds that's like, like an electric motor or like if you um like the the door stoppers and you flick one. Sounds like yep. that. Except that, that would like mm-hmm. slow down over time. This is just right. going like this for thousands of years, Ever. which is pretty amazing. I'm going to play one more That's for so you. Cool. Uh, my last sound is, I couldn't find the fastest. This is the second fastest pulsar yet detected. You guys, it's going so fast. It rotates oh. 642 times per second. <laughs> and at that at that rate wow. the 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 pulsar it, itself is is rotating at one seventh the speed of light 
to make the rotation that fast. And if we, you know, take that, uh, that, that radio waves and we convert it into uh, audio, it sounds like this. Oh, my God. Oh, no. It's awful. I'm going to stop that. Uh, horrible sound. Yeah, that's a but really that is... high-pitched, horrible. <sighs> yeah, now keep in mind, it's rotating 642 times per second, so we're getting two pulses for every rotation because it's like a, a lighthouse with a light oh, going both directions. Yeah. So pretty wild. Mm. I, I could go on and on about how cool pulsars are, but I do need to wrap up because it's going long. Um, I wanted to know, let you know that my main source for facts and dates this week was uh, Wikipedia. Uh, and the sounds you heard were actually compiled in a cool video that you can check out if you want to hear these more. It's called The Sound of Pulsars uh, by the YouTube channel Cosmonology. So you can check that out. And uh, it was fun so to return to space turf. for some more, some nerdy uh, space nature. There you go. <laughs> We're Thanks, going Kirk. to Thanks, Kirk. Yeah, shoot to a break. And then, Rachel, I hope you are you going to bring us back down to Earth? I am. All right. We'll see you soon. Hey, everybody, it's Kirk. Uh, you know, this show is listener supported. So what you're hearing is content that was supported by the members of our Patreon group, the Society of Strange. You can support the show and join the society over at patreon.com slash strange by nature. Go check it out. See some of the benefits and help support a show you enjoy. Welcome back, everyone. So... Um, I actually wanted to talk about something pretty specific, uh, today, um, just to kind of go along with what I did last week, but not in the same vein. Um, oh. so, okay. Oh, is it like, in, is it very, pedantic? are you going to tell us what's a freed and what's a vegetable? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I could, but I won't. Um, Okay. <laughs> no. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about something that I, I found really interesting and I was doing research on something else uh, that I saw really a really cool insect that I saw and I was doing more research into it and I found out about this. I found out about just tangentially <laughs> and about this topic and Let I was like, out. what? Anyway. So today I am going to talk a little bit about hummingbirds, but more in a broad sense, not like talking about oh. any specific hummingbirds, cool. which are cool and on their own right, right? Um, they are primarily uh, right. nectar drinking little birds. They're, they have the smallest bird in the world among them at the bee hummingbird, which is the size of a bumblebee they're so cute um and they're one of if not the only bird that can fly backwards and there's a lot of really cool things about hummingbirds but as i, I was say, uh, I, I gotta jump in and say one thing though because you yeah. said you know they're primarily nectar eaters and one of the things people well they do overlook. also eat insects as well spiders they're big on eating spiders yeah. a lot of them. Oh, but everyone oh, thinks okay. about like the flowers. It's like, well, that's just what they're drinking. Mm -hmm. that they're eating. Yeah. They okay, also that, that's my pedantry like... coming through. Go ahead. Ah, uh, well, that's hilarious. Um, actually, because <laughs> what I really wanted to talk about today is some of the things that eat hummingbirds. 
Oh, we're going the other oh. way. All right. What eats We're going the other way. Okay. Um, yeah. So oh, and I see why that's I... ironic. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> oh, good. Um, so <laughs> we're getting the reason there. why I want right. to talk about this is you. because they are relatively small. So like some things are really obvious that the, of what would eat a hummingbird, um, like their eggs, for example, like make for tasty snacks for like a squirrel or like a sure. rat snake, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's totally, uh, not necessarily unheard of. But some things that I I learned, I just was like, what? <laughs> uh, so hummingbirds, one of their main predators are, some of their predators are things like praying mantis. Oh, so wow. okay. I know praying mantis can yeah. be, get decently large, but generally speaking, we don't think of them as being large enough to take down a small bird. Right. No. And they can. Um, another one which makes sense too is like sharp-shinned hawks um, are pretty sure uh, common predators as well, um, as well as largemouth bass. If they are flying over water, the bass will jump out and eat them. Um, <laughs> oh. Really? Yes. What? Okay. What is the hummingbird doing hanging out? Yeah. Over the lake. Well, that's what I'm know. wondering. I don't know. It could also be um, hanging out near the edge. Maybe there are flowers or uh, I'm, sh- flowers I'm sure. I'm sure. Near the edge. And okay. the bass right. come up and they see the bird and they go, Hop! nice little wow. snack for them. What a um, way to go. <laughs> right? A fish. You didn't even know it existed. And all of a sudden, there's you're in its belly. <laughs> Um, green frogs and bullfrogs have been recorded eating wow. ruby-throated hummingbirds in particular. Really? Wow. Oh, yes. Okay. That's, yikes. That's, I mean, bullfrogs can get... Not, I mean, they're like... They can get real big. Not huge, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah. For context, like a, a bullfrog or a green frog, they're generally like three to four inches in like body length. Um, so you don't think, yeah, but apparently they have been documented to eating, uh, hummingbirds. Um, wow. Another one I feel like wi- it would be really sharp to swallow a hummingbird and it's pointy little it's bill. Beak. Yeah. Especially yeah. since they don't have teeth. Yeah. I mean, bullfrogs, yeah, they, they're, they can get, uh, like up to two pounds, I think in weight. So they're, they're hefty. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another uh, another predator of a hummingbird um, is orb weaving spiders. So not only are they eating spiders, but spiders are eating them. Eating them. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Which is In Soviet pretty Union, interesting. You don't eat spiders. Spiders eat you. Ah. <laughs> Um, there's even been records of not necessarily of them eating, uh, eating a hummingbird, but there has been, and this is where I got into it is, um, there's been records of a dragon hunter 
which is a large dragonfly, at the very least capturing a hummingbird with the intention of eating it. Wow. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, to the point where it. there is actually a picture, which I will put onto our social media with um, appropriate yes, credit giving. Um, now, the person who wow. captured the picture did free the hummingbird from the dragon hunter. Uh, so it it looked like it was going to try to eat it. It didn't want to let go of the hummingbird, and the hummingbird was a little shocked. I mean, yeah. Would you want to let go if you like got the catch of the century? Like, <laughs> uh, no, I wouldn't actually. Um, and there's actually be been very, a couple. Very unhappy. Uh, yeah, and there's been some uh, thought th- thoughts of uh, other types of dragonflies also, but this is the only like photographic proof that we've had um, of a dragonfly capturing right. a. I think it was a ruby-threaded hummingbird. Um, wow. Well, you know, when you first started out this topic, I, my mind went to, um, well, I don't know how long evolutionarily hummingbirds have been around, but back mm-hmm. to those giant, like three foot wingspan dragonflies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, back in the millions of years ago, mm-hmm. they a, would have no problem catching period, a hummingbird. Right? The millions of years ago time? Millions of years yeah, ago. Yeah, the millions yes. of years ago. That's perfect. Well known geological age. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I really wanted to talk about the different uh, predators of these um, of these birds, because not only are there um, uh, there are some other insects and things that will attack hummingbirds like bees or wasps, um, since they have similar uh, foods. Um but not to eat but them, right? Like not no, not to eat them. It's more or less to like outmaneuver and attack them to like drive them off. Right, right. Um and feral oh, cats obviously or outdoor cats also are pretty uh common as well. Sure. Um another not necessarily it. predator, but a way that they have been found uh as like an enemy of hummingbirds. Um, so there apparently have been reports of like hummingbirds who have been impaled on, uh, the spines of cactus. Uh, and sometimes they'll get stuck in like, uh, seed or that. Sometimes they'll also get stuck in tree sap. Um, so they're um, accidentally impaling themselves on spines. Yeah. Wow, that's huh. that's not like horrible. a shrike or something. That's right. That was my first mm-hmm. thought was a shrike. Put them not there, like, but if they right? were making a taking a wrong I mean, turn and ended up on a spike, that's not a good day. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, another one is like anything with um, uh, like burrs, uh, like thistles or common burdock. Mm-hmm. Sometimes can also, um, can also like get ensnared yeah, and oh, yeah. tangle them up. Goldfinch is yeah. the same thing Which will happen. Can cause stuck problems. in like burdock. Mm. Mm-hmm. This um, is just turning into a how do birds die uh, segment. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a little bit. But I just really wanted to talk about uh, some of the different predators and the interesting food chain that they are part of. Because obviously, like those insects then go on and get eaten by even bigger insects or like mammals and things like that. So I wouldn't 
expect sure. hummingbirds to really have I, I never really thought about hummingbird pre, uh, predators before but once i heard about like the potential yeah, dragonfly yeah. hunter eating them and then frogs eating them th- i could not talk about it so that's my topic for that's today a, amazing <laughs> that's a cool topic thank you thank yeah you. no problem uh maybe one day we'll cover hummingbirds uh further because they're pretty fascinating as it is anyway <laughs> Indeed. Um, my uh, my sources this week were a uh, journey north, uh, as well as the Hummingbird Society uh, and the Ruby Throated Org, uh, which sounds uh, yeah, it's Operation Ruby Throat, <laughs> the Hummingbird Project. Uh, so they cool, were really you. cool and really helpful this week. So we're gonna take a quick break. And when we return, it'll be Victoria. Hey, we're back. My story takes uh, starts out in March 2009, and Michael Spaulding was close to completing his goal. Michael is a marathon swimmer, and he wanted okay, to swim so not a all of the... Got it. No, 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 not that Spaulding. <laughs> Uh, he wanted to swim all the channels between the main Hawaiian islands. Oh, wow. And yeah. So, uh, the last and most difficult was the 30 mile long channel between Maui and Hawaii, uh, which is challenging not only for its length, but also for significant winds that can occur there. And Mm -hmm. you kind of have to pick your conditions really well, pick your night. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you have to set off in the middle of the night to be able to complete the swim in good weather. So Ooh. he had set off in the middle of the night and Ugh. he had a kayak. Mm. You can tell this is not going to end well, right? No, no I'm just not. already, um, I, I mean, I like going for a dip in the water. I'm not, oh, but no. Yeah. 30 mile um, swim sounds awful. <laughs> 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 Through eel infested waters. Oh. Uh, well. <laughs> Hang on. Uh, so he had a kayak that was going alongside him and a bigger boat that was accompanying him, you know, for safety, food breaks, etc. Mm-hmm. So as Michael was swimming and, you know, there was some issue with the boats not being able to see well. And so they turned on their lights. Not too long after that, Michael started feeling some creatures bump up against him. No. Nope. Uh, he oh, thought they were no. squid, but he was, you know, he's feeling kind of freaked out. And... He felt he just had to keep going. Mm. Suddenly he felt a sharp pain in his chest just to the side of his Uh. sternum. And he yelled out and he started swimming for the kayak to get out of the water. Uh And as he was getting out, he felt another pain in his left calf. And he hauled himself out and discovered that um, the bites consisted of perfectly round Chunks of flesh that had been scooped out of his body uh, um, about two and a half inches in diameter. Yeah. Three centimeters. Shouldn't turn those lights horrifying. on. Huh? Yeah, clearly. So Michael not. Michael knew immediately that he must have been the victim of a cookie cutter shark. Uh, <gasps> no, gosh. now I have to take this off my list. Oh, <laughs> they're so cool. Oh my goodness. I love I mean, those. They're so cool when they're not taking chunks of flesh out of your legs, but yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> just a so little chunk. Cu- <laughs> yeah, just a little little bite. A little nibble. 
pound it's of flesh. Explore, exploratory um, nibble. It's just a flesh wound. <laughs> Only a flesh wound. Uh, the cookie cutter shark is Assistius brasiliensis. It's also known as the cigar shark, which mm-hmm. tells you its approximate body shape. Um, you know... To look at, it's not especially fearsome for the most part. It's only mm-hmm. about uh, 42 to 56 centimeters long. That's like 16 to 22 inches. They're so cute. It's got, yeah. It's kind of small fins. It's generally brown in color, and it has a, a dark band on its what you could call its throat area. It mm-hmm. stretches more or less from gill to gill. So it is also um, bioluminescent. Oh, wow. The enti- so cool. Yeah, the entire... Underside of its body is covered with photophores, which are small luminescent organs. Um, and so the entire underside of its body, except for that dark band that I mentioned on its throat. Mm-hmm. So um, its mouth, though. I am going to show you a picture. Okay. Oh, see oh that? gosh. Oh, that was, those look sharp. Yeah. Uh, now. So it has these kind of. Rubbery uh-huh. lips. Yeah, it looks like it wants to give you a big smooch. Yeah, and its its teeth on the top are pretty small. Yeah, uh, the ones on the bottom an, look like an actual yeah. like the teeth from like a saw that is just bent. Exactly, Indeed. like a big wood saw. Mm-hmm. Yes, just so. Uh, <laughs> so the cookie cutter shark is shark is mainly not a predator, although apparently does sometimes take squid and other smaller creatures. But it, it lives mainly as an ambush ectoparasite, mm-hmm. <laughs> which um, <laughs> basically means it waits around until a large creature gets close. That uh, could be a larger shark, uh, okay. a whale, an orca, a large fish such as a tuna, man swimming across the occasional miles. unlucky human. <laughs> yeah. Um, then it lunges forward, suctions its rubbery lips onto the flesh of its oh, victim. No digs yeah digs in its saw-like lower teeth and then quickly rotates its head from side to side Mm -hmm. back and forth until it dislodges a round chunk of flesh gosh like that's hence hence cookie cutter do you have any sense for how this cookie cutter i mean that's how you do well so yeah i'm getting to that okay um But I can tell you now, the average size of the bites is five centimeters across and seven centimeters deep. <gasps> from one source that I read. Oh, that's, that's so like deeper deep. than across. Okay, I was picturing like yeah. wide and shallow, but it's smaller and deep. Okay, yikes. Yeah, Which, I'm a I little mean, unclear on that because, you know, Michael Spaulding yeah. said that the the cut was only like three quarters of an inch deep. But maybe okay. it didn't get like its full, yeah, its full amount out of him. I don't know. Well, wow. and maybe like him moving and everything, and like actively getting out probably impacted. It wasn't that laying there like, go ahead, I mean, take a bite. Yeah, have fun. Because I mean, if you well, are going to be a little okay, everything is going to be moving, trying to not t- get a bite taken out. But if you are yeah. a cookie cutter shark, you would want to go a little deeper at the very least, so that way you get more of like the meat and the muscle rather than right, like maybe right. the blubber or anything like that, that might be on the outside layer, you know, the skin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Point. Well, yes. And you kind of edge on to a good point, which is like, why would animals come near to a cookie cutter shark? <laughs> Can't see. And 
Here's, yeah. Well, the cookie cutter huts at night. Um, mm-hmm. It spends the day, they believe, you know, not a lot is known about this animal, but it's they believe it spends the day deep and then uh, migrates to the surface, closer to the surface in the evening. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you remember that dark band on the shark's throat that I mentioned? Right. And the luminescence. Uh, so it seems that this lighting scheme actually helped make it invisible against the light of the night sky. That's except so cool. for this dark band. Okay. Which might resemble a small fish. It's attracting other critters up. Like it looks yeah, like a small fish, the, so it comes up. I think it's a lure. Yeah, That's so exactly. cool. I, I gotta imagine oh, if a so, big enough thing has come to eat that fish, though, it's gonna eat you. Like, I mean, they're <laughs> well, just taking a quick bite. The shark is really fast, so it's coming up. Wow. The say the dolphin or whatever is coming mm-hmm. up, and the the cookie cutter just like twists around and bam, sucks it. sucks itself onto the side and takes its chunk out. Ugh. Um, so it is cool. apparently quite common to find whales, dolphins, seals, sharks, rays, right. and other large fish with uh, one or many, in fact, round scars indicating they've survived a cookie cutter attack. Uh, and swimmers apparently uh, too yeah. at this point. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty rare for humans to be attacked. Sorry, swimmer. <laughs> Don't go swimming swimmer. in a deep Hawaiian channel at night with lights above I you. Mean, basically, pretty uh, much. Yeah. Advice, but yeah. Um, but you know, as you might expect, bites are seem to be more common on weakened animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've also been known to take bites from submarine sonar domes and other equipment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right cool. yeah oh yeah. that's so cool and you know as i mentioned human bites are pretty rare most of the reported ones come from shipwreck survivors mm-hmm. um there's one freaky story about an underwater photographer who was swarmed by a school of them so apparently they sometimes hunt in packs uh, which is cool. a little bit of a disturbing nope. thought that Don't i'm like gonna leave that. you with <laughs> I I think it's cool. It's so much fun. I do have to take this off my list, though. I'm not too surprised that it was on your list, Rachel. <laughs> my main sources this week were... Um, there's a webpage from the Australian Museum that was good. Uh, an Atlantic article by Alexis Madrigal from 2013. And uh, the Shark Research Institute. Excellent. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Victoria. Anybody yeah. up for a night well, swim? It was. <laughs> no, thanks. That is a really good song by REM, though. Night swimming. <laughs> but it doesn't involve any cookie cutter shark bites, to be no, clear. No sharks. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye bye. See you then. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.